Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's bonus time, bingers. In this week's bonus, I've invited two creators of the Orange Tree Podcast on to talk about their investigation into the 2005 murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave. They jumped head first into the true crime podcast space and they took it by storm. Please welcome Haley Butler into New Thomas. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined on the phone today with the creators of the Orange Tree Podcast, Miss Haley Butler and Miss Tanu Thomas. How are you guys doing today? We're doing good. Yeah, we're doing super well. How are you? Really well. We were just discussing before we got on the air that we're having unseasonably warm weather here in Michigan, so I feel like a Texan. Yes. Oh, yeah. So are you guys from Texas, or how did you end up meeting at the University of Texas? Were you guys from the area, or did you come from other places? Yeah, we were seniors in college when a professor hired us to start an audio production house out of the journalism school. So they wanted to kind of like recreate a major podcast production house, like a Wondery or a Gimlet, but, you know, use our students, Mm -hmm. you know, um, abilities to, to do something like that. So we were hired as the first two hires. And, you know, the journalism is a, the journalism school is pretty small. So it was really shocking when Tanu and I had never met before until we were both hired for this project. And so we met, we met then before, before, right before we started the Orange Tree podcast. And that was your, both of your senior years? Yeah, it was our last semester of our senior year when we met. Right. So where are you guys from? Are are you originally from Texas? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from New York. I, that's where I grew up. And then my parents moved to Texas, South Texas uh, when I was in high school. So then I ended up going to the University of Texas. Yeah, I'm actually from Austin. And so I, you know, just stuck around. It's, uh, I've always wanted to leave Texas, like tried every single opportunity, like graduation in high school, graduation in college to leave Texas. But through it all, I'm so glad I'm here. Well, yeah, you guys got Joe Rogan now. Yeah, oh, we yeah. do have Joe Rogan now. Tanu's <laughs> <laughs> a huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's. Uh, he, yeah, I was just listening to his podcast the other day, and it sounds like he's pulling all of the LA comedians are all now following him down to Texas. You guys should have quite a comedy scene once the pandemic's over. Yeah, I, I think he's like, you know, buying up some spaces that were at risk of like being sold or or like like not being around anymore afterwards. Yep. So you guys are seniors at the University of Texas at Austin, and and you you said the whoever was was wanted to create this audio production house came to both of you independently. 
Yeah, he had a well. So he had a job opening, looking to see if there are any is if there's anybody interested in like audio production that was a journalism student. And Tanu and I had like experience in you know like newspaper writing and like magazine writing. But ultimately, what we were thinking in the back of our minds is we want to be either NPR um, journalists or podcast journalists, like long form journalists. So as soon as this. Mm-hmm ad came up, you know, this like this job application came up and was circling around the journalism school, we both applied immediately. And then yeah, we were the we were the two chosen to start this. That's so cool. And and is that when you guys say at the beginning of your episodes that it this is a production by the drag? Is is that the the production house that was created? Yeah, that's right. So um Haley and Haley, myself and Robert came together and we were trying to envision what the podcast uh, production house would be, and we came up with the drag, and yeah, it started. Yeah, the drag is um, that's what a bunch of students have always called this street, like surrounding campus. It's called Guadalupe, but everybody, yeah, the nickname of the street is the drag, and so it's kind of like an older, like older thing. Like I feel like uh, UT students from you know like. 80s, 90s, early 2000s, always called it the drag. Not so much anymore, but yeah, we thought we'd pay a little, pay a little homage to it. That's awesome. That was going to be my next question. Where did we come up with the drag? Now, now, when the, is is Robert? You said the name of the of the gentleman that that posted the job originally. Yeah, Robert Quigley is the um, ex- the executive producer of the drag. So yeah, he's the one that started the whole operation. So what was his vision as he explained it to you when you got hired was it was the purpose because because the drag is it's it's a nonprofit, right? It's a nonprofit. Yeah. It's um his vision was basically, you know, everybody at the journalism school loved podcasts like Serial and Dr. Death and there wasn't really an opportunity for our journalism students to like do long form journalism, which is what a lot of people liked, but people mostly stuck to like breaking news and UT news and kind of like one off things. But we have a top journalism school in in the nation. And, you know, there, I think he felt compelled to like, kind of be more innovative within the program. So yeah, that's what that's what that's what his vision was. So is it, I know it's, it's a job outside of your classes. Is it, is it been integrated into part of the journalism program or is it standalone outside of it? Yeah, it, it is. So there's a capstone class, a journalism capstone class. And so what happened was Tanu and I graduated and then we basically were like, we were already, you know, like a few months into the Orange Tree uh, production. So we wanted to stick around. And the way that we could do that was integrate what we've learned so far in uh, building the orange tree and using Robert also has this capstone class. So he brought in some of the podcast production into the capstone class. So there's like an innovative course now where students can learn, you know, what are the ins and outs of making a long form podcast, what that's like. And so for us to be able to stick around and finish the orange tree, after we graduated, we helped out with the class. And so that's kind of what like funded us and like our living and, you know, kept us alive until we were able to publish the orange tree. And we actually, we don't work for UT anymore. We're doing some freelance podcasts now, but, but yeah, that's, it is integrated into the program. 
That's really cool. So, that, so there's actually now a class. So, what's interesting about the, the the podcast, the long form, especially in the the long form true crime podcasting genre, is you know it it kind of really became a thing in 2014 with serial, and and then there became you know, and, and of course Sarah Koenig was an actual journalist, and then there came along thousands if not millions of of people like me who have no journalistic background that that started creating these podcasts and reporting on it and it's like it's kind of coming full circle so now it's going back into the journalism school where they're actually teaching journalists how to create a podcast. Right. 100%. Yeah, I think it's it's something that we particularly like about the long form like medium you know we've been offered to do kind of like short form kind of true crime stuff but we really like to stick to the like deep dive kind of investigative journalism work that you know we 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 started at the journalism school and that we were kind of taught how to do yeah i think like the audio has always existed for like journalism students uh because we're always going around with a recorder and like encouraged to record everything that we come across that's interesting And, you know, for all of our stories, we have so much audio recorded because, you know, we need to transcribe it and write it up later for our pieces and articles. So it was just a natural thing for them to integrate podcasting into into the journalism curriculum because, you know, the audio is already there. We already know how to uh, make it so that the interviews are like seamless and interesting. So it, it just felt like something that was waiting to happen. And then it did. I think that I think that's really really cool and and you know I I listened to the whole podcast it's fabulous it's and one one thing that I noticed is not only is it is it is the content really well done but the sound design is really well done where did where did that expertise come from I mean did either of you have a background in audio engineering or audio production or did Robert or did you guys hire someone how did, how did a group of journalist students, as you said, that wrote for, you know, magazines and things like that, put together such a well-crafted podcast. That's so nice. Yeah, thank uh, you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Tanu and I were just really interested in in those kinds of things and always getting better at it. So mm. we did the, you know, audio production classes that the journalism school offered, which was a total of one. And then we basically went on from there to practice on our own. Yeah, we, we tell uh, yeah. students all the time. Um, and we in like most interviews that we do, especially for when we know young people are listening, we tell them that when we started the orange tree, it was like all a learning process. So like while we were producing, we were constantly sending each other like tips on uh, like things that we were discovering. And really, a lot of the learning happened online, because UT and the journalism school specifically really encourages us to like, learn on our own and and tackle our education like independently. So that's kind of what we did when we wanted to learn the audio, like the production aspect of it. So a lot of it was like learned through YouTube and like Reddit. When we couldn't figure something out, we just like would go ask questions online, figure it out. And then that's that's kind of how that happened. That's also it's 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 and I I think I say this every week, every time we do one of these, but the process is so in so many cases is is so similar even with the different backgrounds because we went through myself and Mike our producer you know we were both firefighters and started this podcast and then you know just like you you know we like downloaded a free version of audacity and then got on YouTube and learned how to do basic editing and then and still learning as we go to do, you know to to try and improve things right yeah i mean it's it's one of the most like 
beneficial things that we ever did was just in college recording stuff in our closet. Sometimes it didn't even make sense, but like just recording stuff in our closet so we could bring it into whatever audio software we were using and kind of mess around with it. Right. You know, sometimes you don't like to hear, you know, your own voice when you're playing back. Tanu and I definitely got really sick of hearing our own voice when we were Uh editing The Orange Tree. But I mean, there's something so like, you know, you might not consider yourself like a a painter or a sculptor or something, but you really do feel kind of like an artist whenever you're you're experimenting in audio software. So that part was like so fun. Yeah, I agree. And Mike, I always joke around to call him the podcast mechanic because it's amazing. The you know, he he takes his his art very seriously to try to make everything sound just perfect. And it just amazes me that people without the background have the now have the resources available to them to to learn how to do that kind of work that I'm, I'm pretty sure 20 years ago no one could these weren't things that were readily accessible right yeah i mean um just the internet makes things so easy to like learn and figure out and i love the podcast medium because it is so accessible to people and uh you know if you have a computer and a mic like you can create like the next best podcast is I mean, that's awesome. Like, that's such a cool, accessible thing. You don't need to necessarily, we love our university, but you don't necessarily need to go to college to figure this out. Like, you can just get on your computer and really watch a lot of YouTube videos and and invest in that. Yeah, it's really cool. Now, I'm assuming that when you guys decided to go to college, to journalism school, that your goal in life was not to become podcasters, or am I wrong about that? What What was your goal when you started? journalism school as far as your career so actually like when we both started uh college in general we neither of us were journalism majors to begin with like both of us switched into journalism in general like around our junior year so like right you know right as we were supposed to be figuring out like you know what we're going to do right after college we both decided to do like a complete turnaround and so i was doing nursing and when i got into journalism i was super focused on print and then um, it was around the, uh, the time that Robert was <laughs> Robert put out the post about the, the audio journalism position that I was like, I'm really into podcasting and I've done audio stories before. So let's try this thing out. Yeah. And whenever I first started at UT, I was a Russian major. And then I switched over uh, from Russian oh, wow. Eastern European studies to to journalism just because, you know, I think there's so much value to a journalism degree that people don't really understand or they might write off given like the current news cycle situation we have. They might write it off as a useless degree or something. But um, I learned so much about not only just like communication with other people, but, you know, like communities and like engagement. Like, I, I don't know. It was just like it's a very eye opening thing. So it was a very easy switch from going to. From trying to learn the Russian language to this. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to figure out what I could switch my major to, where I could like write and also tell my parents that I wasn't an English major. So. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you are both graduated, you made uh, an, an incredibly well done and incredibly successful podcast. What are your career goals now? I heard you say that you're you're doing a little bit of freelance work. Do you plan on going into a full-time career as podcasting journalist or do you have another path in mind? Yeah. I mean, good question. 
when people, it's so funny because when people ask us this, I still feel like I'm a student because like we're both only 23 years old. And so we're just like still kind of like figuring it out. But for right now, um, we're doing podcasts that are very orange tree-esque, which I think is like very exciting um, because investigative journalism is like what I want to do. And I think Tanu will uh, agree with me on this, but I can't see myself being an investigative journalist in any other medium, truthfully. That's not saying I'm counting it out, but there's something so exciting and humanizing about a podcast that I want to keep doing. Yeah, after we finished The Orange Tree, there were like a lot of people that wanted to ask us if, like, what we would be doing. And a lot of people came to us asking if we would want to work in like different fields and uh, like, you know, having to do with journalism but, or like having to do with audio. But uh, luckily, we did get an opportunity to work independently and continue to produce podcasts like The Orange Tree. And we both jumped at the chance to do that. So that's exactly what we're doing. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you guys have another podcast in the works. Yeah, we actually do. So we're working on two new projects. I don't know how much we can talk about, but like Haley said, they are, um, they're both very similar in that they're long form. Uh, they have to do with, in, in, they're still in the same genre and uh, we're still able to report and do the production and stuff like that. So yeah. pretty fun, pretty exciting. And so you can look forward to, to those coming out soon. Yeah. I think in like late spring is when, when we can announce everything. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool because it's like the same exact dynamic as the orange tree, like which, you know, Tanu and I always talk about how much we loved working together for the orange tree and how great it was to have, you know, the support of a friend and like an excellent co-director. And we get to do that again with like two hosts, you know, and all of that jazz. Well, that's awesome. All right. So the last thing that I want to ask before we shift into talking about the case, the murder of Jennifer Cave, is Haley, can you say, right after a short break, let's get into the case in Russian? Oh, shit. (laughs) I don't think I can. I don't remember anything. I'm not going to lie. I dropped it so fast. I, I dropped it so fast. It was one of those things where my mom told me it would be a good idea to do this. And then I just kind of ran with it, you know, like I read one book, like Master and the Margarita. I was like, this is cool. And then I learned the alphabet and I was like, I am on top of it. And then I forgot everything. The only thing I know how to say is like, I love reading and uh, uh, I think that's it. Do that, do that one and just say that's what it is. Uh, can she do that okay, one? Then, then, then let's hear I love reading. Yalu blue uchit kanigi. Right after the break. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. All right, so now we're going to get into this fascinating case that you guys covered that had a a hell of a twist to it, the way you guys laid it out and produced it. Um, Can you guys first go through just the beats of the case? We're talking about the murder of Jennifer Cave. Uh, It occurred in 2005 in August in the West Campus area of Austin. So 
kind of kind of break us through the the beats of the case as far as what happened le- leading up to her murder, how she was found, and uh, the the suspects later the defendants their their actions afterwards. Yeah, one hundred percent. So Jennifer Cave is a twenty one year old girl in two thousand and five. Uh, she's from Corpus Christi, and she ends up being, you know, she ends up coming to Austin after trying to figure out what she wants to do for a while. While she's trying to figure out what she wants to do, like her career path and whatnot, she's working as a waitress in, uh, at Austin and has a few friends, you know, typical, typically like partiers, you know, like just like young people trying to have like a good time. And so she knows uh, this guy named Colton Batoniak, who is a business student at UT. And he's like, kind of a like a high school prodigy, kind of like academic prodigy. um, While he was living in Arkansas, but he was um, at UT at this point, he, you know, sold some drugs, like loved to party. And you know, his his schooling was kind of like, he was he wasn't doing the best in school at this time. But him and Jennifer were pretty good friends. And Jennifer after going through this whole thing, you know, trying to figure out what she wants to do uh, with her life, she gets a job at a law firm. And it's like a front desk position, but they like absolutely adore her. So they give her like, a better job than the one that she even applied for. So like, everybody in her life was so stoked for her because, you know, this was kind of like the turning of the new leaf kind of thing. Her parents were worried about her. She, you know, she wanted to have a good time, hang out with her friends, but she also knew that this is what she wanted to do. And like, this is how to get back on track. So she ends up meeting with Colton, who said he wanted to celebrate, you know, Jennifer's new job. And they go down to Sixth Street, you know, where everybody goes to party in Austin. And, you know, they have a few drinks. Uh, Colton's like, been a heavy drinker that whole night, you know, taking some Xanax too, mixing that together. And at some point, they leave 6th Street around midnight trying to find Colton's phone. And they end up heading back to the Orange Street condos, which is, as you said, right in the West Campus area where Colton lives. And the next morning, I mean, nobody can, you know, Jennifer didn't show up for her job. People are kind of freaking out. The law office ends up going to Jennifer's apartment trying to find her. Nobody can find her. Her mom's calling her you know, where, you know, where's Jennifer, where's Jennifer, where's Jennifer. And, you know, what, what ended up happening that night is, is, you know, basically Colton wakes up at like 5am, finds his phone at some point, I guess, and uh, wakes up to find Jennifer's body in uh, his bathtub. And he, he says that he has, has no recollection really of that morning until um, he, he remembers that he had texted his like kind of like kind of like girlfriend not really just kind of like friends with benefits situation Laura Hall uh who was a UT student at the time she was a government major and at some point he had texted her in the morning wanting her to come over so Laura's on her way because she she really likes Colton Colton sees Jennifer's body asks Laura not to come over um but Laura comes over anyway so was that that's one thing I was a little confused about did he According to his story, did he text her and ask her to come over before he found Jennifer's body? So, yeah. So according to his story, he um, invited her to come over because they were supposed to hang out the night before. He was kind of like uh, either avoiding it or had gotten too drunk to like really reply to her that night. So 
The next morning, he, he finds her phone. He replies to her, goes to the restroom uh, to use the restroom, sees Jennifer's body, and then immediately texts Laura back saying, hey, never mind. Do not come over here. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the story. He That's the story he presented in court. So we don't know exactly what happened over the next few hours. But all we know is that there is a list written of some supplies. People kind of run various different errands. Colton goes to this local hardware shop called Breeding Company and picks up the list of supplies that's written, including, you know, just like Febreze and like uh, 55 gallon drum liners and then also a hacksaw, comes back to the orange tree. And, you know, there are different accounts of what happened here. They both Colton and Laura kind of blame, you know, each other for this. But like, at some point in that morning afternoon, uh, Jennifer's body is is dismembered and her head is cut off. And so are her hands. And at the, I mean, at this point, Jennifer's family is getting the police involved. Uh, Colton and Laura get word of that. And at some point in that evening, they flee to Mexico. So they take Laura's green Cadillac and go to Mexico and leave Jennifer's body behind. And that's when you pick up the next, uh, the next day. That's when our first episode picks up of the orange tree where Sharon and Jim start their own investigation on finding their daughter, Jennifer, and end up finding uh, Jennifer's body in Colton's apartment. So before we move, move on from here, I want to talk about the dismemberment a little bit, because I, I did some reading online. I listened to the, to the show and then uh, did some read, reading online about this. And, and it's the, the prosecutor presented to the jury as though the dismemberment, he said there was, there was no purpose behind it. It was just playing, you know, I think his words were that it was like they were just playing with the body, cutting it up. But it, I'm curious what your impressions of that are, because when I, when I read about this and listened to it, what seemed like what happened to me was they put together a plan to dismember the body and get rid of the body and got started on it and either stomachs were too weak for it, realized it was harder work than they thought it was going to be, or for whatever reason, they abandoned the plan and that's what they went to Mexico. What are you guys, what are your guys' feelings on the, the dismemberment of Jennifer's body? Well, it's really hard for us to like, have like certainty in any of these things but we do know what people have said like the people involved in the case so obviously we know the prosecutors what they presented was that you know they're they were playing with the body but um what what colton said was uh he doesn't remember that morning but he must have been scared and trying to get rid of it and just you know he was drinking and, and taking xanax still all that morning so that's what he said and laura you know she she denies it now, but and and also back then, she was going back and forth on whether or not uh, there was a reasoning behind it. But she also that was the that was the understanding from from what she said, which was that they were trying to get rid of it. And you know, if you look at the list of the materials that they're buying, like the gallon drum bags, I mean, someone could paint the picture of like they're trying to get rid of something. But again, we we can never really know for sure what those gallon drum bags were. I mean, maybe they were just trying to. Throw out trash. Yeah, we definitely have talked to people that are kind of thinking along the same lines as you, whether it be, um, you know, lawyers or investigators Mm -hmm. on Colton or Laura's behalf that that suggests like maybe they were trying to separate 
the the body parts in order to prolong the identification of the body. Uh, but yeah, we we really don't know for sure what they were thinking. But that is definitely a theory that uh, is out there. Right, and they, and they and they, it should be noted they they left the head and hands behind when they fled the scene. They were they were there in a bag, right? Yes. Yeah, they actually they actually left everything. Yes. Um, it, I mean, like, again, like the, the theory presents, like it, it looked like they, may, they were maybe starting to put things uh, into the bags and then stopped uh, around the time that they took off because they were hearing that uh, the cops weren't coming to the apartment because they did receive a call like shortly beforehand saying, hey, like this was a call from, um, well, he was getting several calls from Jennifer's mother asking uh, where Jennifer was. And then also from uh, Jennifer's ex-boyfriend saying, hey, like you better tell us the truth because the cops are going to come to your place soon. Um, so at that point, you know, they just pick up and left. You know, we don't really know if it was an intentional move, if they meant to leave it behind, if they meant to take it, but didn't have time. But what we do know is that they left it behind and took off. Right. And took off and, and left the country. Exactly. Right. So um, they flee. Uh, they make it to, they make it to a town like right over the border, border Piedras Negras. And um, while Colton and Laura are in Mexico, there's this picture that surfaced um, of them sitting at the hotel manager's house watching, uh, what was it, MMA? Was it an MMA fight? It was a wrestling yeah. It was like a wrestling match where they were drinking. And it, I mean, it, it clearly looks like they were like having the time of their life, like with the smiles on their face. So, you know, we can kind of presume that they're kind of like, a lot of people think that it's like a Bonnie and Clyde situation. They think that they've gotten out, that they could like, you know, party and have fun. But they're, they're there for five days. And while they're there, you know, back in the States, like the funeral is happening. Austin's in kind of a panic because nobody can figure out where Colton is. But eventually the police get word and, um, you know, marshals, you know, are able to, to, to ultimately find them. And because they're using their credit cards um, in their own name, they're using their cell phones. Ultimately, after a few days, it wasn't very hard to find them. But whenever they're taken back into the States, they both go on trial. They're, they have separate trials. Colton's is first. And Colton's trial, um, his attorneys ultimately decide to go with this kind of theory where it's like Colton is is guilty of the murder of Jennifer Cave but he didn't do it intentionally and so they put him on the stand saying he, they don't that he doesn't remember and um you know Eddie and Bridget Petoniak and also Colton have regrets about going with this theory or letting the lawyers go with this theory now because you know that the original trial really like limited them in terms of what they can present in appeals later on. So they are, they're, they're really, um, they're really regretful of that strategy, but Colton was ultimately sentenced to 55 years in prison. Um, he has to serve, I believe half of it before he's eligible for parole. And Laura's trial was next. And so Laura was originally up for just hindering apprehension, taking him to Mexico, but then they ultimately added the charge of the dismemberment of the body. And that's actually when Laura was, when her trial was going on, the charge was specifically called tampering with evidence. It wasn't like a, um, there wasn't like a charge 
for like a dismemberment of a corpse. It went this this tampering with evidence went back to like grave digger times. So the only the max amount of sentence that uh, she could be handed was ten years. You know, she has some crazy antics in in her trial, and you you know when you listen to the podcast, you can hear about it. But she uh, was ultimately sentenced to five years. But then her lawyer, Joe James Sawyer, got her um, an appeal. Uh, an appeal went through a, where she got a retrial. And um, she got a resentencing uh, specifically. So people were reevaluating whether, you know, she should spend those five years. Maybe she could get less. But what ultimately happened was this prosecutor named Allison Wetzel found all of these uh, jail phone calls that she was making to, you know, people in her life where she was very threatening to a lot of people involved in the case, including Sharon, Jennifer's mom. And it did not look very good for her. Um, She also had some jailhouse confessions at that time. So a woman named Henriette Lagenbach uh, told police that Laura confessed to the murder. So all of that was kind of like on the docket for Laura by the time her retrial was up. So she, the jury actually sentenced her to 10 years instead of five. Which was crazy. That I, I've actually never heard of that happening where someone wins their appeal, gets their conviction vacated, and then ends up with a worse sentence than they had to begin with when it was all over. Right. right. Yeah. It was, it, was, it was really wild. Like, no one saw that coming. But even her lawyer will say, like, that was, that was something that they really couldn't avoid because of the jail, jail phone calls. and. Um, the prosecutor, Alison Wetzel, was really smart to have, like, gone through and, like, looked for those because, yeah. you know, Laura had this history of uh, saying inflammatory things and doing inflammatory things in her previous trial and even throughout Colton's trial. And knowing that she, you know, she just had this idea that she would obviously not really refrain or restrain herself when she was making phone calls and wait, awaiting her, tri- her retrial. So... She went through them and she found what she was looking for. And once presented, it was really hard to, for, for the jury not to, to, to do anything about that. In fact, like uh, in one of the episodes, we mentioned that she even, like, it's like she, she knew who was going to be in that courtroom. She even like said something about the judge. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, pretty um, inflammatory. Inflammatory. Yeah. 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 So she, yeah, yeah, it's, it is pretty crazy. So she was sentenced to 10 years, um, the maximum amount of sentence that someone can serve for tampering with evidence. And since then, in terms of like the new information that I think that we kind of unveiled to the public um, are Colton's appeals. And so he's had a number of appeals that have been uh, very interesting. He's added a lot more um, like confessions, like Laura talking in prison to her cellmates and things like that, uh, and confessing to the entire murder of Jennifer Cave. And so, you know, th- those are included in Colton's appeals, as well as uh, Jason Mack, who Laura saw while they were kind of like crossing paths in one of the courthouses. Uh, he wrote, he, w- he was involved in, in an appeal that said that Laura confessed to him to shooting Jennifer. And that's, you know, originally how she died was a gunshot wound to the right side of her body. So she confessed to Jason Mack, who was also like heading to prison at the same time that, that uh, she, she shot Jennifer. And so, I mean, the appeals are, the appeals are very interesting. And, you know, the, the 
involvement in with both of the families is is really heartbreaking because you know for Colton's parents you know they believe his son is innocent so they're like fighting to the nail to like get their son out of prison or get a retrial and all the while that this is going on Sharon and Jim and Jennifer's family they're showing up to every single appeal uh every single hearing because they believe that you know Colton was definitely the one that shot Jennifer so, you know, there's just been a lot of emotion over the past 15 years that I just don't think that a lot of people knew about. And that was a huge motivator for us mm-hmm. to tell this story and kind of tell it as much as we possibly could to the UT community, to the Austin community. So I don't think a lot of people knew about it. Right. You know, I, I, when I, when I, even when I started listening to the show, you know, with several of my listeners that, that suggested I, I give it a listen. I honestly didn't see the the ambiguity coming that we see at the end. I mean, it seemed very cut and dry. Colton did it. That you know, it was just like like you're telling a story. Obviously, he did it. He he dismembered her, and uh, you know, it just so happened that that this Laura shows up after he tells her not to. She's pushy and she shows up anyway, and kind of gets roped into it. And then as as it goes on, because we find out isn't the physical evidence of the scene. There's both of their DNA is on her body, right? Both of their DNA cannot be excluded from things like the hacksaw. So that's where, you know, Colton has this line that he, he told us when we interviewed him in prison, where he started crying when, you know, her DNA couldn't be excluded because he thought that was like his way out, essentially. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do it. Also, it was on, uh, on the gun as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. But her DNA was both on those two things. And so when he found out, he was like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, it was my gun. And yeah, I, I got the hacksaw. But, you know, he, he's like, yeah, I didn't do it. Her, there's her DNA. But, you know. Yeah, I think ultimately um, what was really surprising to us was, like, like you said, when we first heard about the case, it, it, we thought it would be pretty cut and dry. Of course, we were hoping that there would maybe be like something, an interesting way to tell this story, right? Like we knew that we were connected to this because of our unique position where we were. But also we were like, we also want to present uh, some new information to our listeners or at least make this something that they haven't heard before. And very quickly we realized, you know, there are new development developments to this and there are a lot. But at the end of the day, after all our research was done, the most interesting part about it was, uh, you know, no matter how much new material would present itself, first and foremost, not all of that can be used because of the initial trial that was done. Like the way in which they can present things uh, is very limited based on the original trial. Second, um, even if that is the case, even if you do ha- like think about the, like, the presence of Laura's DNA on something, that doesn't necessarily uh, repaint the entire picture of the original trial either because, you know, uh, if you like listen to the very long interrogation, Laura herself at some point admits like, yeah, I've handled a gun. That doesn't mean I shot it. So like the present, like all of this, all of this information, like when lined up in a specific way, what you learn about like the justice system in general, when lined up in any specific way or a different way, facts can be lined up so that a certain picture is painted. So it really just depends on like a courtroom's willingness to hear that specific lineup of facts. And that's the difficulty that that uh, people navigating the justice system face today is just getting their like lineup of facts presented. Right. Well, and unfortunately, maybe fortunately, I don't know who actually pulled the trigger, but, you know, Colton, because of the strategy of his defense attorney has, as you mentioned, has really 
is really handcuffed when it comes into post-conviction appeals because, you know, he was asked directly on the stand, did you kill her? And he said, yes. And when asked why he's saying yes, he said, because I can't think of any other explanation, paraphrasing, of course, he can't think of any other explanation. You know, he went home with her and he woke up and she was dead in his house. So he must have killed her. And so when any of these appeals items come in, like Laura's DNA or anything like that, it all gets balanced on the scales of justice as to, okay, well, even if that's the case, would that have been enough to change the outcome of the trial when you said on the stand that you killed her? Right, yeah, it's really hard to, to tell a, a new jury or present that to like even, even like a new judge and say, you know, this guy confessed, but on the stand he confessed to doing this, but now he says he didn't do it. That's a really hard thing to like go back and, and, and like un, undo, but that is the, that's the strategy that his uh, defense went with. Right, and so, you know, l- legally, I don't know that he would ever be able to prove his innocence if he is, in fact, innocent. But on a, on a practical level, you know, as we got into more of the Laura situation um, and learning more about her and some of these supposed, you know, alleged, alleged confessions and things like that, it kind of took me all the way back to the beginning, something I had just somehow breezed by at the very beginning of the, of the podcast. And then it kind of snapped me back to it is motive. Why would, Col- why would Colton kill her? They're friends. He's never had any history of violence or anything like that in his past. Why would he kill her and then go to bed? But and if you look at Laura, it's like, well, there's you can at least imagine a motive there because she's seems like she's head over heels for Colton and and he, you know, for lack of a better term, seems like, you know, he he just uses her when it's convenient for him, but doesn't really like her the way she likes him. And now he's hanging out with this other girl. You can almost you can at least maybe imagine a motive there. And then, as I said, that's where that kind of unexpected ambiguity came in in the way you presented this, because I, I, I found myself at the end thinking, God, maybe he really didn't kill her. Maybe he passed out. It also should be noted that didn't Jennifer, when they did the, her autopsy, didn't she was all, she didn't, she had like meth, marijuana, and alcohol all in her system. Is that right? That is, that is true. She did uh, have a number of, of drugs um, in her system that night. One thing we do, you know, mention is like, that's whatever, you know, Jennifer was doing that night. We just didn't really want to focus on it. A lot of those, those questions and that intrigue really came in during the trial. And in our version of, of how we wanted to tell the story, we just didn't find that to be like the most riveting story. We explain it because like, we know, we know a lot of people that also you know, do drugs. And, uh, and that's not the story that we wanted to, to, to really tell. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. She did. She did have those drugs in her system that night. Right. I think, again, it's about the presentation of facts. So, um, you know, Colton was on was drinking heavily from that afternoon. And he was taking Xanax, which, uh, you know, is has been known to have like, you know, effects that make you lose your memory. So um, if, if you put facts together like uh, the prosecution had before, including the fact that he has shot a gun before accidentally in his apartment, when those facts are lined up, it could be said that maybe he accidentally shot her. And that's something that even he had uh, told us in his interview. Like, I thought maybe at most I accidentally shot her, but I couldn't remember. And I, don't ha- I never thought that I would ever do anything to her, anyone, let alone one of my best friends. 
And then, you know, if you, if you don't think about that part, of course, it's, it's, uh, it's very like easy to think about, oh, maybe someone else with a motive did this. But sometimes when something like this happens, there isn't a motive, it's an accident, but you never know. It just really depends on what facts you have available to you. Right. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And the case, the case is just so fascinating for me, who does crime scene reconstruction and, and profiling as part of my work on truth and justice, you know, like the, the drugs in her, in her system. Like to me, I'm looking at like victimology and what is that telling us about the moments leading to her death? And it's like, well, they were obviously partying pretty hard, you know, and with Colton at least having a history of drug dealing, you know, that maybe he was also doing the, the same drugs along with the Xanax and the, and the alcohol. And it, it, that certainly could explain an accident. It also could certainly explain why he might have passed out and had no idea that, that she had been killed. It could go either way. I, I'm really hooked on the case where I want to look at more of the the forensics on it too, like a crime scene reconstruction, because her body was found in a bathtub, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Was there any indication that it had been moved into the bathtub or did it look like she was shot there in the bathtub or in the bathroom? There was the the fact of like a rug in the kitchen that was used to um, wrap the body up at, at some point. We don't know if that was used to move the body, but it seems to be that way because the rug was usually in the kitchen. It wasn't in the kitchen. Uh, it had been displaced and you know, I guess there was DNA on it. So that might've been what it was. And also like, you know, in Colton's latest appeals, uh, they even like present an alternative perpetrator theory that has nothing to do with Laura, but present um, things like an eyewitness security guard from that night, as well as um, some other like testimonies that came in of people who said that they were at his apartment that night around the same time that Jennifer was, uh, that the prosecution presented that Jennifer had been killed. So if you look at it that way, again, presentation of facts, if you look at it that way, it couldn't have been Colton because it was someone else entirely. And like, not even Laura, you know, she wasn't even there. It was, it was a whole other set of, of people that came in and had uh, moved the body and, and did all that. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, depending on what you know. So as we're about to wrap this up, you guys, as as journalists, it's it's kind of your job to try to really remain neutral and just tell the story. Did either of you, through the process, form a personal opinion about a theory of the case, or did you just try not to even do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And when people ask me that now that the podcast is over, you know, like what I think, I, I mean, I can tell you, honestly, I have absolutely no idea. It is, I mean, in terms of our process, we always remained neutral but just kind of like open to new information on both sides yeah I mean as human beings it's really impossible like I mean it's just you you know that a a journalist telling you like there's a difference between a journalist being very neutral and a reporter reporting something neutral and then also the order of events in which they get information and their thought on what happened in a certain situation given those order of facts so of course like as we were going through it we would get a specific fact and we would be like, that leads us to believe this. And then we would get another one and we would, we would think that leads us to believe this. And so at the end of the day, like Haley said, at this point and like throughout the whole process, even at the, at when we were concluding the reporting, we were like still at, at a point where realistically we can't tell you what happened and we don't know. We don't have an opinion on that because it's really difficult to say. I mean, if, if, the, if the courts can't tell you, like we're not any, we're not any more like, uh, I don't know, we don't have any more facts than they do on that. However, um, yeah, throughout the process, it it was uh, a series of 
thinking one thing happened and then thinking another thing happened. Sure. So was this the first or the the largest scale journalistic project that you guys had worked on? Uh, yeah, I mean, outside of the ones we're working on now, 100%. Uh, definitely the longest. Yeah. Definitely the uh, biggest production. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. It was our, it was the biggest thing we, I think both of us had done. It was a culmination of like all of the skills that we had gotten in journalism school, just really put to the test. And um, that was awesome. Also, you know, gaining new skills as we were doing it, but definitely for both of us, I think biggest thing we had done yeah. up until that point. Yeah. And I mean, like, the the idea that like people like we were working on stories about like the UT farm stand or like a local musician before this you know uh-huh. we always had an interest in like doing a bigger story but in terms of what our classes and things allowed we weren't able to do something like this so it's crazy to think that we went from writing a story on like you know a, a campus incident to um, interviewing someone that's never gone on the record before in prison. Right. I feel like throughout journalism school, you know, there were several times where you see a lead to like a really interesting mystery that you're trying to solve. And like, there were stories that I did like that, where it was like, I'm doing something cool and new. Yeah. But then in comparison, it's, it's very different. And this was like much larger scale being able to talk to everyone involved, which is really cool. And also there was the support of all our our professors like like mm-hmm. journalism and otherwise to really pursue this um whereas when you're pursuing something on your own it's really hard to try to convince someone that this is something that they should really care about yeah but with the backing of the whole pretty much the whole j school that was uh we were able to do it yeah with ease. <laughs> so so this being your first big true crime project and you said you got to talk to all the people connected to the case or a lot of people you know you you at least had some communication with laura you spoke with colton in prison you spoke with colton's parents you spoke with uh jennifer's parents what was i guess for our, our last question i'll each of you answer what was that like for you i know you know that again as as journal as trained journalists you're at your all of your education tells you to keep your emotions out of it your personal feelings out of it but what was that like when you're, for you, maybe emotionally or, or just on a personal level, when you're talking to the parents of a woman who had been murdered or talking to, you know, a man who's in prison for something that he's saying he didn't do? Right. I mean, we quickly learned that, like, traditional neutrality kind of goes out of the window, when, especially when you're talking to the victim's family, which is something, you know, we just have never been presented before working on, you know, kind of like a campus story. But, you know, we went there to talk to Jennifer's family in Corpus Christi to talk about somebody that we saw ourselves in, we saw our sisters in, we saw all of our friends in. And so to get into that space, you know, that headspace where we really wanted to learn about Jennifer and what she liked to do as a kid and what her relationship was like with her sister. You know, it's not like something that you can just be like, you know, very neutral about. Truthfully, like when we were interviewing and Sharon was telling us about her fight for on the behalf behalf of Jennifer and why she why she does interviews like this and, you know, why she has so much advocacy because she passed the Jennifer Cave Act. And you hear about that in the last episode. You know, I just couldn't help but think, you know, about my family, about my sister. Tanu has a sister. And all of that. And I mean, I started to tear up and I'm not very shamed about it. And, you know, you think that you can't do that, like when you're taught in journalism school. But 
there's a certain point where your goal is to humanize people, people who have passed away, mm-hmm. people where you don't know, you know, the struggles that they've been in in court or or behind the scenes or whatever. And you, you really have to get into that headspace. And uh, I'm very glad I, you know, I'm very glad we did. And I'm very glad we were able to tell that emotional story about what Jennifer's family experienced throughout this whole time. And to do that, we kind you know, we, we did have to throw away a little bit of, of neutrality and, and just put in a ton of empathy. Yeah, I think I, I don't think that emotion necessarily like negates neutrality at all. I, I really do think that if we're presenting the world as it is to other human beings, you can't just be robo- robotic about it um, and leave emotion out of it because uh, that's not really telling a story. That's presenting case facts. And if you're going to do that, people might as well just read about the court case online. Um, and what we were doing was presenting a story from a unique perspective and perspective uh, includes emotions about a certain subject. And so that's that's kind of what we did. We tried to include emotions when it came to talking about Jennifer's story, as well as talking uh, to Jennifer's family um, and what they're going through now, as well as Colton and his family. You know, right. like we express the difficulties of navigating the Texas justice system. And, you know, truly like the emotions that we felt, you know, even going to the prison, regardless of like how we feel about the case specifically, like going into a prison and acknowledging that if there is a chance that someone innocent is uh, facing this kind of sentence, that's a really difficult thing to grapple with. And, you know, both of us knowing that the Texas justice system works the way it does, we know that even if it's not Colton, there are other people in there 100%. that uh, definitely are serving sentences that, you know, are, shouldn't, they shouldn't be serving. So all of that put together does make us, did make us emotional with that part of the story as well. And so we wanted to be able to express that to our listeners, um, at least in a little, a little bit, so that they could fully understand what we were going through in the reporting process and be a little transparent about that. Well, that's great. And, and you know, I, I agree with you 100%. It's when you take it to an audio medium, when you're trying to capture the, the real emotions of the people you're interviewing, it's hard to somehow turn that switch off in yourself, at least for me, when I'm doing, th- when I'm doing that. And you guys did a, a great job, not only with that, but with the, the podcast in general. I would recommend any of you listening now that have not checked out the Orange Tree podcast. It's, it was seven parts, right? Seven. Yep. So it's seven episodes. It's really well done. Uh, this is just an overview. That's a deep dive in the case. You'll hear from all these players, uh, so definitely check that out. I'm looking forward to to hearing your new projects come out in the spring. That sounds really exciting. And, and congratulations on your success with the Orange Tree. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much. We'll keep you updated with our our new stuff. Fantastic. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. 
Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another true crime binge.